Game on on 2FM with Green Farm. Fuel your day with Green Farm's new high-protein cooked chicken breast fillets. 100% natural and packed with flavour. Thanks to Jenny Green. It's Monday 13th of December. This is Game On. John Kenny with you for the next hour. Coming up today, we took a lot longer than expected, but we do have a Champions League draw to dissect. More on that with Alan Cawley and Stephen Kelly. The earlier draw in the Champions League is now void. Wow. The draw has been voided. Uh, so what we are hearing now uh, is that the Champions League will be redrawn this afternoon. In Formula One, Declan Quigley and John Watson are standing by to relive the Abu Dhabi drama on and off the track after a final lap for the ages. But right now, we have a wheel-to-wheel race for the 2021 Formula One World Championship. The safety car comes in. We go racing again. Hamilton leads. Verstappen is second. There's one lap to go. Whoever wins, wins the title. In rugby, we get you up to date on the bombshell letter signed by some of the biggest names in Ireland's women's rugby. Plus, there's a clean sweep of Irish wins in Europe too. And in athletics, Andrew Coscarin will reflect on a close-run European cross-country championships. If you want to get in touch, you can text us on 51552 or tweet at GameOn2FM. GameOn on 2FM. Game's Alan Cawley. Evening, John Kenny. How are you? Um, not so bad. Not so bad. Good day today. Very uh, good. Can't complain. You're filling me in. Go uh, on, tell no, everyone. No, I won't. No, Go on. No, it's a good day. It's just a good day. Go on. No, nothing. No, Sometimes just... it's good to tell people no, about No, I don't want to tell day. anybody. I just had a good day. Uh, so how was your weekend? Good? Come on. I'm going to give you one more chance. You're <laughs> playing golf and you won the competition. Tell okay. everybody. That'll do. Grand. I won okay. the competition. Next. How was your weekend? I had a great weekend, John. Yeah. yeah. Um, a kids' tournament. I know people talk about under nines and you shouldn't get too carried away and all that kind of stuff. And but we you don't. did. Well, they won their first little tournament, our little under nines team. So they were over the moon, overjoyed, great little scenes with the kids. Um, and they're great with young fellas, Port Marnock under nine. So shout out to them. Yeah. So that was part of my weekend. Obviously, watching the football yesterday. Um, and of course, the Formula One finale. And I watched a bit of boxing, Katie Taylor Saturday night. And Connor Ben also was very impressive. But. Katie doing what Katie does and she's obviously it's it's become the norm now but looking forward to the big fight now that they're obviously planning I think Eddie Hearn was saying it'll be in April um, so that'll be that'll be huge for Katie and I look you're looking at her at the moment she's so almost iconic now at this stage it's so inspirational to so many people here and young girls and everyone and the, the amazing career that she's had I'm just looking at her the other night thinking John that that big fight now and that could be the culmination of everything. And, and the Serrano fight. Yeah, finish yeah. it off after that then maybe, you know. Probably, yeah. Yeah, she's gone around a long time, isn't she? Yeah, she is around baby. a long time. And just before we go on, I want to send my condolences uh, to uh, Marty Morrissey as well on mm. the untimely death of his mum. I know he buried her yesterday, very emotive as well. So we send all our sympathies to, to Marty on that. Now, the Champions League uh, last 16 draw, we heard there was a bit of a glitch. Uh, Manchester United were <laughs> drawn against Villarreal. They shouldn't have been done. Anyway, they had to withdraw, redraw it. So it's now Red Bull Salzburg versus Bayern, Sporting Lisbon against Manchester City, Benfica, Ajax, Chelsea, Lille, Atletico Madrid and Manchester United. Could be an interesting game. That Villarreal will play Juve, Inter against Liverpool, PSG, Real. We talk about this more uh, later on in the program. What do you think to it though? That yeah, well, draw? obviously there was a lot of controversy over the, the the first draw, but you look at the draw that's made now, and and we're focusing on maybe the English teams. I think it's not a bad draw for Chelsea. Obviously, Chelsea are very strong. I know they had a little blip last week, but I think that's a good draw for them against Lille, who are sitting mid table in the French division. I think everybody had, wanted Lille, didn't they? Yeah, they've had a poor yeah. season. Liverpool, we we of course we saw them against 
AC Milan last week and AC Milan were on top at the time of Serie A Inter Milan won 4-0 last night so they're gone top but if that's the standard of what we watched with AC Milan last week I think Liverpool will be quite happy with that Man United away to Atletico Madrid I think that's a really tough tie John. that's a tough tie that is a really tough tie uh, and certainly watching them on Saturday night you couldn't be hopeful going into I that I saw your tweet yeah, you're oh, comparing them to Liverpool well I wasn't really well, no I'm not comparing we're saying that Liverpool are playing so well and United mm. are not the point really being was the fact that Liverpool are so good we rave about them obviously I watched them against Aston Villa I know we'll talk about it later on they're just they play with such a pace and intensity and it's amazing really in how they play and their approach and they're relentless they never stop that was like a swashbuckler Man United that we grew up watching. Yeah. You look at Man United now and it's it's a million miles off that. He's got a lot of work on his hands. Anyway, we will talk more football with uh, Alan as well and Stephen Kelly at about 20 minutes to seven. But you mentioned it yesterday, the final lap shootout. But right now, we have a wheel-to-wheel race for the 2021 Formula One World Championship. The safety car comes in. We go racing again. Hamilton leads. Verstappen is second. There's one lap to go. Whoever wins, wins the title. If they crash, Verstappen wins the title. They come into turn one. Hamilton is just ahead of Verstappen by four tenths of a second. But Verstappen has brand new, fresh, soft tyres. Hamilton's tyres are very old, very hard, and he runs wide coming out of turn three. And he's going to have a brilliant opportunity. He sends it coming into turn five, and Verstappen takes the lead. Verstappen gets ahead of Hamilton and moves into championship winning position. He then starts weaving left to right, left to right, all the way down the straight, which is against the rules. But Hamilton is still in there, still in the toe. Looks to the outside, coming into the chicane at turn six and seven. There's one more chance for Hamilton. And that's down into turn nine. He gets on the power. Verstappen has a slide. And they're going to be slipstreaming. No, Michael, that was so not right. Here comes Hamilton now. To the outside of Verstappen, they're coming down to turn nine. Hamilton doesn't do it. Verstappen holds the lead of the Grand Prix, and Verstappen is going to become the world champion. He's got six more corners to go. Hamilton has lost it on the final lap. He won his first world championship on the final lap of the Brazilian Grand Prix in 2008. Verstappen is going to win his first world championship on the final lap in Abu Dhabi 2021. The checkered flag is there. Verstappen's the world champion. Hamilton loses it right at the end. Mercedes are going to be furious. Red Bull are going bananas on the pit wall. Christian Horner punches the air, clenches his fist, shouts at the camera. Max Verstappen closes his eyes, looks up towards the sky. The 6,000 Dutch fans are partying in the grandstand as the fireworks go off. It's a happy Max Verstappen. Uh, good evening to Declan Quigley and to John Watson, formula McLaren, former McLaren F1 driver. Good evening, gentlemen. Hi, John. How are you doing? You well? Very good. Hi, John, John Watson, let's... I uh, haven't spoken to you now in quite a while. Uh, how are you doing? Things, life's good for you? Well, getting over the excitement, the tension, you know. I had to get an ambulance out last night. I was <laughs> distraught with the results. I mean, I've just done an interview. You may have seen it in Sky News with Bernie Eccleston and uh, interesting his perspective of what took place and I was given my views of it. Lots to talk about, I would say, John. Absolutely. What do you make to it all, then? I think it could have been handled better. 
I think, obviously, at the timing, five laps to go, a safety car was deployed. Now, I'm not sure whether a safety car would have been de rigueur or whether they could have put on what I call a full course yellow, which would have precluded anybody going into the pit lane. But what allowed Verstappen to win was clearly clever strategy for Red Bull. Get him in, put on a set of soft red sidewall tyres, the softest tyre Pirelli has. And then, fortuitously, when he went back out on the line of cars, he was, what, five cars behind Lewis? Those five cars got waved through, but the rest didn't. Another anomaly. And then, of course, when the race went for that final lap, Max had a massive tyre advantage, a massive grip advantage over Lewis. Lewis was a sitting duck. Michael Massey, Declan Quigley, he was the race director. It's a lot of focus on him today, isn't there? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, um, JK? We were talking about what was going to happen in this final race decider and would it be Lewis crashing into uh, Max Verstappen or more likely Max Verstappen crashing into Lewis. Instead, both drivers behaved pretty much impeccably. There was yeah. a pretty controversial moment at the very start. and That weaving on the last lap was a little bit chancy by uh, Verstappen. But, you know, for the most part, both of those drivers did absolutely fantastically well. And it's really frustrating because they were... They did a really good job, and Hamilton did everything perfectly, and at the end, it's Michael Matthews, the referee that ends up the centre of the story, and it was a little bit disappointing. In some ways, it was kind of inevitable, because that's been the way of it for the last year. They have this thing where they say, let them race, that's the phrase. So there's been a sort of of an unspoken understanding that wherever possible, they were going to keep the continuity, keep the event going, not have stop-go penalties, not have stoppages, and really... You know, John's right. Maybe a virtual safety car might have been the right play there, but or even I think even better would have been red flag, bring the cars back, fresh boots on both cars, fresh tires, and then let them have a, a two, three, four, five lap uh, shootout to the to the flag. That probably, with the benefit of hindsight, Michael Massey, the man from from Australia, is is. I mean, he's got so many inputs. The man has, is having to make huge decisions. And there's constant lobbying from Mercedes, from Red Bull, and presumably from those other uh, teams as well that were implicated when they, they, you know, the cars needed to, to move past uh, Hamilton and move past the safety car and unlap themselves. And, and that's just so much input, so much pressure on his shoulders. Fundamentally, I think he made a big mistake. Uh, I think it's most dissatisfact- unsatisfactory. Ideally, I think, you know, I wouldn't like to see this be decided in the courts. Let's just have it. I, you know, Max Verstappen's a very, very worthy world champion, but it's just, uh, it has left left a bit of a bitter taste. Absolutely. Uh, Lewis Hamilton, John Watson, today, and it's just been revealed, that he said over the team radio at the end of the Grand Prix that the race had been manipulated. Do you think that's true? It wasn't consciously manipulated, but the consequence of the actions taken by Michael Massey would allow Lewis, if he wanted to have a conspiracy theory, to believe that that might have been the case. It wasn't. It was a circumstance. It was. It could have been handled better, but as Declan has pointed out, so many things are going... I mean, Michael Massey, he's got so many inputs coming into him. He's having to make decisions on the hoof. He made decisions which he felt were, at the time, the right decision. But what I believe was unfair was that the pit lane was open. It was an enabled, certainly the principal challenger to Lewis in both the championship and for victory to come in, change tyres, go back out again and then benefit from having the, the five cars between Lewis and himself wave by so that Max was right on the gearbox of Lewis once the race went to that final lap. That, I think, is not fair, but it wasn't done for Netflix, that's for sure. But undoubtedly, the outcome, the result, 
is certainly going to have people talking for goodness how long. And ultimately, you know, the owners of Formula One, they look at Formula One as being entertainment, not purely as sport. Mm. So at the end of the day, and certainly Lewis and I feel sorry for him, I supported him. I wanted him to win his eighth world championship, and he had done all the hard yards through the race, albeit having to run wide and turn four on that opening lap. Again, Max doing one of his last eight-minute dives down the inside and forced uh, Lewis wide, but there was no penalty given. The biggest problem I see overall is there is inconsistency in making decisions about moments on the racetrack or moments in the pit lane or wherever we need to have that rule book, and that rule book's very thick, and there's no pun intended in that comment either. There needs to be continuity and consistency. Teams, drivers, everybody working in the pit lane or on the racetrack needs to know that if this action follows or this instance occurs, this action will follow. And I mean, I know the whole idea of let them race, let them race, and I, in a way, support that, but not when you're getting dive-bombed after right and centre, and Lewis is always the one that is making the, the step aside to avoid the collision. Lewis is a smart, savvy race driver. He knows Max is an unguided missile at times, yeah. so he has to rely on that space. But in the process, he ended up losing the Grand Prix yesterday because of doing so. Declan, one thing, in, and John alluded to do about Netflix there, because they've obviously that series, uh, the story behind F1, uh, and it's actually brought a kind of a new generation of people to F1. They're starting to watch races now after watching that Netflix series. But talking to a few people today, they couldn't quite understand why these yellow flags or uh, safety cars were being deployed and then they let everybody by, uh, uh, except for Max and, and uh, Lewis Hamilton, well, let them at the front just to shoot it out. They, they just couldn't twig why this was happening. It's a complicated sport, there's no doubt about it. And yeah. Maybe a lot of the return... You know, there isn't a huge fan base for Formula One racing or for any motor, form of motors because fundamentally it's, it's really, really difficult to understand. I, I always sort of had the analogy with cricket, which is obviously one of your sports and is not an easy watch if you're watching it for the first time. Yeah. Um, F1 racing, I suppose it has been brought to a new audience. I mean, I went out for two bike rides over the weekend with different groups. Everybody was talking about the Formula One and everyone from 16 to 60 has been watching this, this TV show, um, Drive to Survive. And it, we got the most sensational conclusion. That's only the second time in 10 years that there's been a final race pass for the lead of a Grand Prix. And we've had lots and lots of final race deciders in the history of, uh, of, of Formula One. Not least, of course, 1982, as, uh, yes, as Waddy there will know well. We've got yeah. exactly that. We've got this Senna Prost type tension. We've got this magnificent situation as well with the, the old dog against the young fox as well. You know, the, the 24 year old, he's the fourth youngest world champion, Max Verstappen, up against Lewis Hamilton, who still seems to be at the height of his powers at 36. But it's a good point. He has been a little bit more circumspect than Verstappen all year, uh, as John says. Having said that, we look back to the, uh, the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. I know you were talking about the, the paranoia of, of Lewis Hamilton believing that the race result might have been manipulated. But similarly, the Red Bull have felt for many, many weeks, months, that the decisions of the stewards and of the race director are consistently going against them. I'm not so sure that's true, but when it's really a high-stakes game and there's so little to choose between the two drivers and the two teams, and they are light years ahead of everyone else in those two cars as well. They're so much ahead of their, their teammates that it really you get this strong sense that they are absolutely exceptional. We're watching the very, very best, but uh, both of them, both teams, 
boat lead drivers getting a little bit paranoid at the back end of the year. Yeah, John, I know that there was two protests handed in by Mercedes last night after the Grand Prix, both rejected by the stewards, but they do have, well, I think it's 92 hours to appeal, so Thursday they could still go through to appeal. Do you think they will appeal again to the FIA? I think they're, they're certainly going to investigate every avenue uh, a possible. Now, also, it coincides with the FIA's uh, prize-giving on Thursday, so... I'm sure both Mercedes-Benz and the FIA will want a conclusion to this situation prior to the award ceremony. It would be a very, very unfortunate circumstance to have an appeal being lodged to go to an independent arbitrary court, a sporting court rather than a legal court. And, you know, it's got to be tidied up and cleared up. But Mercedes are duty-bound, I feel, to examine all the possibilities. And I believe there were sufficient anomalies and I know the two protests were turned down by the stewards, but even in that, I gather there was a certain amount of if and and or but. So I think they're quite right to do so, but whether they will actually then lodge that appeal within the time span they are permitted, uh, that will be a call that they will make in conjunction with their legal advisors. Uh, you, you mentioned Bernie Eccleston today, obviously the man who uh, um, you know well, obviously doing that interview today on Sky, the former uh, Supremo of Formula One. He says that Lewis doesn't really, well, not that he didn't have a foot to stand on, but he shouldn't really be complaining and uh, that he lost it fair and square. I, do you, I don't think you hold that to be true, do you, John? Well, in my opinion, the, the, the Lewis did a supreme job in the race. The team did a supreme job in the race. The strategy, the, the pit stop, whatever, that's what Lewis Hamilton, he's a winning machine. He knows how to win races, but most of all, he knows how to win championships. And the Mercedes had the pace of the Red Bull all through the race. Max drove as hard out as he always does, but just didn't have the pace. But when the time came and the safety car was deployed, Red Bull immediately brought Max in, put on those soft tyres. They didn't know whether the race was going to finish under a red flag, sorry, under a safety car or not but in the event that it didn't they were going to be best prepared of the entire whatever number of cars were remaining in the field so when the race did go on that for the final lap that 58 Max was primed charged adrenaline probably pouring out of every orifice and air that whatever and he just had more speed coming out through one and two you could see coming through turn three he was just gaining all the time and, of course, in the run down into turn five, the first major break, big break on the lap, Lewis had only a certain amount of grip left in his white, the hardest of the Pirelli tyre choices. And there were so 40 laps old. Yeah, there were 40 down. laps yeah, old. Yeah, dive, yeah. He couldn't dive, do something dramatic. The door was certainly left open, and I thought maybe he could have done a bit better there. By, but even, I suspect, if he'd closed the door on the entry into the corner, Max had enough grip to go down the outside, carry more speed and drive around the outside of Lewis. He was a sitting duck. And that, I think, is what's unfair. It wasn't a level playing field at the end. It had been a level playing field all the way through up until the safety car was deployed. Thereafter, that disappeared. Yeah. All in all, Declan Quigley, though, I know it was a tremendous climax to what was a wonderful season. 
Oh, it's been an absolute epic. It's ebbed and flowed throughout the year. There was a tiny little rules tweak. These rules have been around for, for years now, and usually that means that the grid tends to condense a little bit. The lap time difference between the front and the back of the grid tends to close up a little bit. And then they made another little tweak to the rules at the start of the year, and that meant that the Red Bull car was just that much more competitive. It's been more consistent. It's been a bit of a scrap indeed for Mercedes to get their car working you know, really well against uh, Verstappen and Red Bull each and every week. But it, it sort of ebbed and flowed, come back, you know, to the two of them, and then we went level on points into the uh, into the final race for the first time in forty whatever three years. Um, but now it's all going to come down to to the legals. I actually think that um, uh, Mercedes might actually go for. It. I think the only thing that will prevent them from uh, lodging that appeal before Thursday at seven pm Irish time will be the fact that, generally speaking, the FIA never ever changes mind when it comes down to this stuff. Once it's made the decision on the day, that's usually the one that they stick with, and that precedent might just prevent them. But they did bring a barrister, Paul Harris QC, to the race yesterday. That will tell you how high the stakes yeah. were and how, how much they they anticipated the uh, the likelihood of something a little bit controversial happening in the final race. So, I mean, they're lawyered up and they're up for it, and they were. It was the really weird thing is that Mercedes won the constructors' World championship, which is the one they paid the prize money on. It's huge for the team. Yeah. It's, it's massive. They won it for the eighth year in a row. But it was like a it was like a wake yesterday. <laughs> Absolutely, was, uh, yeah. They were devastated because Hamilton didn't get the drivers' title. It's. Look, as you say, it's been absolutely fa- it's been a fabulous year. New rules next year. We'll see whether Ferrari and uh, McLaren can come back, but uh, but this one is one to save. Absolutely. Listen, thanks for joining us, uh, John Watson, five-time Grand Prix winner with McLaren, and also Declan Quigley as well, giving us uh, a viewpoint. And uh, we reckon by Thursday we should know definitively who will be crowned the Formula One world champion for 2021. It was absolutely riveting stuff. We're going to talk rugby after these. With Green Farms on-the-go chicken bites, 100% natural and packed with protein. Available in selected Tesco's nationwide. Game on on 2FM. Now we talk rugby now. Uh, well, let's read you what uh, Rory O'Connor from the Irish Independent has written today. The IRFU have issued a statement in response to the letter sent by 56 current and former women's rugby players to the Minister of Sport, Catherine Martin, and Minister of State with Responsibility for Sports, Jack Chambers, last week, in which they said they'd lost faith in the union's stewardship of the female game. And we got a response then from the IRFU. The IRFU says it's aware of the letter. It's disappointing that this group should choose now to come out with a series of allegations giving all involved in Irish rugby a full aware that two well-resourced independent reviews are in train and it is from those reviews that lessons based on facts can be learned and the foundations built in which will serve the women's game well for future generations. Well, Rory's on the line with me. Good evening to you, Rory. Hi, John. How's it going? Very good. Give us the background to this. Well, the background is really um, the disquiet that's emerged in the last couple of months after Ireland didn't qualify for the World Cup in Italy um, with that last gasp defeat of Scotland. And I think the fallout after that has exposed a lot of the disquiet amongst female players, women's players, past and present, about the way the game is run in this country. They, I think the, the comments by Anthony Eddy, which were well publicised last month during the international window, where you know he's the director of women's and sevens rugby, he appeared to absolve himself and the RFU of any blame for that World Cup failure. I think that's also kind of brought the, this the boiling point and this collection of players who are basically a, it's a who's who of 
the greats of that 2014-2013 team, it's the current team, it's Cleaner Maloney, Lindsay Peace, re- recently retired captain, uh, Claire, uh, sorry, Kira Griffin, Claire Malloy, Senna Nuupo's on there, some players who are going to continue on as well. They've come together and they've written to say that they've lost faith in the RFU's running of the game, which is just an incredible point that we've reached in the women's game in this, in this country. And the RFU have hit back, you know, that they've said that they were, you know, they disagree with the tenor of the of the of the, the, the t- and the timing of, of the of yeah. The, letter the timing's the one Cameron. thing, isn't it, Rory? Because they're saying their independent reviews are in training. From those reviews, I'm learning. Oh, sorry, I'm reading from this statement now that lessons based on facts can be learned. So why now? Why this letter well, now when the well, reviews are still ongoing? Well, they also rejected the, the content of the letter as well in, in the paragraph about that, John. So it's not just the timing that they're unhappy with. They've they've basically gone twofold on it. The the, the players. Ha- it's in the players' letter where they've written to Jack Chambers and, and Catherine Martin where they say they want the government to take have oversight of these reviews to make sure that whatever findings are found are implemented, that there's transparency, that the players themselves have some sight. Um, I think what they fear is it's going to be some sort of a whitewash where, where the RFU will, will publish this report. Well, sorry, they won't publish this report. They'll publish it internally. They'll kind of cherry-pick the findings to suit their own... Uh, agenda and that well, they will all is, move is on that, with is, their lives. Sorry, sorry Rory, that. Is, that what, is that what maybe this letter is, just to push that agenda yes, to say, look, we, we we want this published uh, probably publicly because the IRF you say that it's only going to be published internally. Yes, absolutely. I think that's that's fundamental to it. And what they want is the government to provide oversight on that as well because the government provides the IRF with a lot of money. They've given them £19 million today to help with the, the to get them through the COVID period. They want the government to have a role in this as well to make sure that there's an independently verified um, kind of oversight in this process so that the players can trust the process because at the moment they say it themselves they don't trust it and I mean the agenda that these players like, there's no material interest in these players doing what they've done today you know they, if they wanted a quiet life they, they, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have done this that you know they're doing this for the good of the game these are people who put Irish rugby on the map to, to a large degree who dedicate a lot of their time to it but they've lost patience they've lost faith and they've lost trust and, and the way the RFU has responded with this this statement, I think, is a bit of a slap in the face, even to, to, to the intention. It maybe kind of reinforces why they went about this in the first place. It's really, it's quite toxic, really, when you when you look yeah. at the, the kind of the gap between both parties who are supposed to be pulling in the right direction, and, sorry, in the same direction for the betterment of Irish rugby. Because you know, the Irish RFU are the, the the stewards of the game in this country. They should be pulling in the same direction as and as these women who who, who want the national team and, and the game to be thriving in this country. Yeah, it's, the timing is, is 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 amazing in this thing. And but why won't the IRFU publish this publicly? They, the way they they have done all their World Cup reviews and all their their um, kind of performance reviews in the past is that they 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 say that they don't want to give away crucial IP to other competing governing bodies. That some of what they find, you know, if, sorry, if you publish it, you might expose some of the people who contributed to it. So they they say that they will be feared that people wouldn't give them honest feedback if they thought their identities would be um, revealed within the report. Now you could redact names and surely and, and yeah. kind of get around that. You know, it, it's just not in their nature to to. to you know they're not particularly transparent in this regard across the board. Whether it's in the men's, you know, World Cup reviews in the past, you know, we, journalists get brought into a room with David Nusifora. He has the report under his hand. He'll cherry pick what he thinks are the findings from it. He's the performance director of the IRFU, yeah. and we all move on with our lives. We never actually get to see the document, the nitty gritty of why Ireland lost to New Zealand at the World Cup in 2019, or went out to Argentina in 2015. Why not? The kind of perception. It's a choice. You know, it's it's a it's a choice that they make at a at, at that level and. 
you know, they are a government-funded organisation, but really I think the only people who could try and, you know, we saw how influential the government became when the FAI were in, were in crisis. I think if, if, the, if the women's players can successfully draw the government into this and, and shine light on this, then maybe we might see some of that transparency that they're looking for because it's clearly at a crisis point now and, and, and I think the government at least are going to have to step in and try and mediate between these two parties because you know, some of Ireland's best players are on that list in the next World Cup cycle and if, if Ireland want to qualify for the next World Cup they're going to have to start pulling in the, right, in the same direction. Yeah, they really have shown their hand now at this stage so where does it go from here? Where's the next step do you think? I mean, it, it seems like it's at stalemate. It does. Um, I suppose what the RFU would say is they're waiting for the review to be completed, that they will then take what's in the review and implement the changes that are necessary. Sorry to interrupt I mean, again, but what, where, when's that review due to be published or not In the new year. I think, well, there's two reports. One is the, the most immediate one is the one into the World Cup yeah. um, failure and the failure to qualify. But, you know, whatever the findings are, they've already replaced the head coach and Anthony Eddy, who's the you know the performance director, has already gone on record what he, what, with what he thinks went wrong. So it's very hard to know what they can implement beyond those those factors. And then there's a wider review into you know every strand of the game and where the club game fits, the provincial game fits, and, and the kind of pathways for young girls to become internationals. That's a longer term, I think. That's probably going to be midway through next year by the time we, we see we you know, we hear about that. So they're ongoing. You know, it's a little bit of kicking to touch. I think what the women, the, the former players and current players are doing now is keeping it in the news agenda. Ordinarily, I'd be here talking to you about the Champions Cup at the weekend. We're not because this is such a big story. It's such an important story, and they're keeping it part of the, the news agenda. And they've done that successfully today. But whether it will actually help bring about results they obviously feel that they have to take the nuclear option but you know the RFU have hit the, the red button themselves and, and it's, it's pretty unhealthy at the moment yeah it certainly is well speaking of Champions Cup <laughs> uh, 4-4 to four for the Irish provinces great win for Connacht against uh, you know Stad were the flavour of the month for a very long time weren't they a very strong side but I suppose a lot of focus on Munster and the Covid and uh, bringing the young fellas in and they did extremely well didn't they against Wasps they did, they did. I mean, everything's rosy in the men's garden at the moment. It was yeah. a really, really successful weekend. There's a big weekend. contrast, isn't it, between the men and the ah, women? It's, it's, yeah, it really is. It really, it really is. But I mean, the, the, the Munster story's brilliant. You know, I was over at that game. They brought a great crowd with them. The mm. fans seemed really energised by the whole idea of going to Wasps without 34 players from their senior setup because of that ill-fated trip to South Africa. The five young debutants, did, you know, played from the start, did really, really well. Scott Buckley scored a try. Patrick Campbell, the former Cork minor footballer, won an All-Ireland in 2019, scored a try. Um, Peter O'Mahony and Ty Burns seemed like they really drew inspiration from the kind of the, the, the cause and, and played like out of their skins and the, you know for context got lost to their own COVID issues and, and had a man sent off after 25 minutes to Captain Brad Shields somewhat harshly and that probably did turn the contest in Munster's favour but really like they were 10 I think it was 11 to 3 on, on, on Wednesday or Thursday of the game I think there was a 10 point spread at one point they really were against the odds going over there and, and they produced a really really impressive performance and set themselves up really really well as those other players start coming back into the fold this week the training ahead of the game against Cass next week they they can really get momentum from this win I think Yeah all those players who were left behind in South Africa they're all home now aren't they as well so they're in isolation so uh, their isolation period should be up this week isn't that the case? Those players who were in South Africa I think they'll miss next week's game but the players who okay. came home first the 34 who came yes, home first yeah, they're all back yeah, training, they're all back training so yeah, yeah. they will have a number of senior players like a good number of senior players back this week it's really interesting to see what they do with Scott Buckley, you know, he, he nailed every line out throw. He, he he was asked to throw on the weekend. He scored a try. Now, does he end up back, with, you know, playing a rugby, or just, did they back him now and say, you know, you're, you're able to do this? You know, Daniel Keke looked like CJ Stander at times out there. The young debutant, number eight, 19 years old, 
Really, well, it's really competition for places stuff. now, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They've, they've, they've taken their chance. They've jumped a few rungs on the ladder. And, you know, I think Johan van Graan had some interesting... You know, he was in a hotel all last week. I'm sure he'd be glad just to be out back at training tomorrow. <laughs> but he has some interesting decisions to make. Absolutely. Uh, finally, uh, Joe Smith, um, he's become a selector with the All Blacks? Yeah, it's an interesting role, isn't it? Because he, yeah. he said he was finished coaching when he left Ireland, but um, he took up a role with the Auckland Blues. He moved home last year. He has been working for um, for World Rugby, but he took up a, a job as kind of a senior advisor to the Auckland Blues, an assistant coach kind of role. Um, and now he's he's replacing Grant Fox as a selector, and, and it's very hard to define what a selector does within the all-back setup. But it's also very difficult to see Joe Schmidt being anything other than hands-on in that role. Um, whether he's an advisor to Ian Foster, whether he has more of a of an influential role than that, uh, it'll be very interesting to see. But I, I can't see him taking it as some sort of honorary position. I think he's going to roll up his sleeves and get involved. And you know, he's such a, a brilliant rugby mind. He's got such good players to work with there, and they need they need a bit of help. Um, you know, it, I think it's 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 a smart addition if if they can work together the two. The, 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 you know, if he can work with Ian Foster, who ultimately will pick the team, you, you would imagine. And I guess it makes Ireland going over there in July uh, all the more interesting. All right. Well, listen, thanks for joining us, Rory, and filling us in with that. The Chief Rugby Correspondent with the Irish Independent. This is Game On here on 2FM. John Kenny with you till 7 o'clock. And uh, Mr. Call will be back with Stephen Kelly after these talk footy. Game On on 2FM. Green Farm. Healthy dinners made easy with Green Farm's high-protein cooked chicken breast fillets range. Available in selected stores nationwide. Two. Two. Game on on 2FM. Hopefully the festival will be back pretty soon. Uh, Go see Avalanche. It's a great Australian band. Fantastic. You know them well, don't you? Oh, I'm a big fan. I of never a- heard of I'm them. a big fan of Avalanche. All right, John. <laughs> <laughs> Who the hell are Avalanche? Oh, Avalanches! For God's sake, it's not even the Avalanches. They're known as Avalanches. They're brilliant. Okay. Anyway, uh, we mentioned this at the top, and we'll do it again. The Champions League draw. They had to redraw it because they made a mess of the first one. But anyway, it's Redburg Salzburg against Bayern Munich. Sporting Lisbon, Manchester City. It's uh, Benfica versus Ajax. Uh, we've got uh, Chelsea versus Lille. Everybody wanted Lille. Atletico Madrid and Manchester United. Villarreal and Juventus Inter Milan against Liverpool PSG against Real Madrid uh, Stephen Kelly joins us I know we got some reaction from uh, Alan at the top of the programme Stephen what do you make of that draw? Yeah um, not bad Chelsea obviously probably the ones delighted to get them pulled out of the hat twice I think uh, even though it's still going to be a tough contest especially at this day's competition there's no easy games but um, you think Chelsea would be the most favourable match and the rest of the team's tough games and like I said at this stage it's it's never going to be easy every team feels like they're in a chance and um, yeah for the, for the English clubs that we're going to be probably mainly focused on Chelsea got the best draw you know he got a tough one in Atletico um, yeah interesting yeah Liverpool enter what do you reckon yeah and, uh, yeah, I just fancy Liverpool at the moment. They just seem to be able to blow anybody away. They've got so much going forward defensively. They're still like they're, they're not being as good as they have been in the past defensively, but they just look as a team as such more solid unit. Um, and the front three are just on fire, absolute fire. Salah's just terrorising people, Mane as well, and you just kind of think the way that they play against anybody, you just don't fancy the chances against them. Liverpool just look so strong. Uh, Alan mentioned that uh, when I saw the tweet myself it, it com- it's a comparison between Manchester United and Liverpool uh, the way Liverpool are playing and the way they attacked Villa relentlessly over the weekend mm. and the 
kind of you know United got a one 0 win over over Norwich, lowly Norwich, but it just didn't look the same, and it's just not the same United as it was. Uh, Ragnick has got a lot of work to do. Do you think, Stephen? Oh, he's got so much work to do. Um, they've just been. They just like lackluster. They don't have a set style or shape. Like we, you know, you you pinpoint all the the, the teams that are pushing for the Premier League. So you look at Chelsea, you look at City, and you look at Liverpool, and you can identify straight away the style of play, how to go about the business, what the manager wants from those players. Obviously, Ragnick has just come into the side. You can't. You're not going to get that straight away. Um, but they're so far removed from having an actual structure and a set way of playing to win matches compared to the other three teams they look so far off it they're going to have moments of brilliance and someone like Ronaldo is going to always score a winning goal for them just because that's what he does um, and that's what he's capable of doing but they need to find a style or a system to suit to getting the best out of him so that they're in games it's not because they've won a penalty it's not because someone's come up with an amazing finish at the end of the match it's because they're actually comfortably winning matches and look like they're going to go from start to finish winning the game which is it's so far off that at the moment why haven't they got a structure of it? Well, to be fair to Ragnick, it's not on him at all, John. He's only in the door. The, you mentioned the tweet there at the weekend, not watching the game. He spoke, obviously, in, in the press conferences before he took over, just about having more control in games, controlled possession maybe, uh, out of possession as well. They were outplayed by Norwich. Norwich. But he wants to get defence right as well. Is yeah, that's fine. That's the only well, positive yeah. you can take out of the two weeks. Yeah. And as I say, the, the performance, I wouldn't uh, relate anything to him. I think the responsibility lies with the players now in terms of their attitude and their approach. Rangnick has obviously come in with his own philosophy and his own style and what he wants to do and implement that. That's going to take time, John. But you have to have, no matter what belief or philosophy you have in terms of the way you want to play, you have to have the personnel to suit the system. So if he comes in and he wants that crash bang wallop, high pressing game, high intensity that we see with the German teams and obviously he spoke about Klopp and the way they play in Liverpool and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't have the personnel to implement that and he's gone with like this system of, uh, we saw it at the weekend, we saw it against Crystal Palace last week and again against Norwich that it's 4-2-2-2. So the amount of work that Bruno Fernandes and Sancho have to do and they're not going to do that work. They're, simp- they're not those type of players. They're not going to do that work. Um, so how he's actually, this is, the, this is the most fascinating thing for me because I really like what I've seen with the manager and, and what I've heard from him and I'm really intrigued in terms of how he's going to go about this because he's very clear on what he wants to do but if you don't have the personnel to do what, what he wants to do I'm just so intrigued to see what he's going to do here John because as I say if he wants that crash bang wallop stuff you won't get it with the personnel that he has and he's obviously trying to accommodate Ronaldo which is fine I've no problem with that that's the right thing to do because he's so good and he's the difference at the moment for uh, where they are on the table but Rashford is a million miles off where he needs to be you look at Sancho as I say 80 million pound player hasn't kicked the ball since he came in the door Bruno Fernandes has completely gone off the boil as well and if he wants this high pressing and high intensity like we see with the other teams the reason Liverpool have that is because they have the personnel to do it sure. and Klopp suits Klopp fits would sign the players or buy the players to suit that system so Ragnick at the moment is kind of I'd say he's only realising it. it's one thing to look in from the outside and he would have been aware of the problems as we all are but it's only when he's probably inside the door now and he's realising just the job that he has on his hands here because it's incredible how big it is yeah uh, Stephen, there's a, one or two stories emanating from uh, Manchester United themselves. They're going to be Brentford tomorrow night is in doubt mm. because of COVID-19 cases. And this is happening now a lot. Spurs, the game against Rome was clo- uh, called off in the in the uh, Europa Conference. Their match against Brighton went the weekend, didn't it? Leicester this week is also in yeah. doubt. I know that the Premier League wrote to all the top flight clubs last Thursday instructing them to reinstate COVID-19 emergency measures. So 
This is raising its ugly head once again, sadly, isn't it? It is, and it's. Uh, I think there was 42 positive tests between players and staff in the Premier League uh, over the last testing period, um, which is a massive rise. And it is worrying, especially if, you know, we're getting, everybody's getting to watch it, they're enjoying football. And, you know, football was very lucky, in a sense, to be able to continue on going through a lot of the pandemic and was brought back very quickly. Um, it was is deemed as a necessity almost. It, it, just, it was almost for people to watch and see, and it was an enjoyment factor. Um, but the fans back to the ground is what's made the difference, and it's huge. And if that starts to go again, if that if that has to be implemented where they can't turn up the stadiums, it's just going back to yeah, football's great watching it, but you know the atmosphere that's created by games, last minute goals, like you see, you know, Jorinho scores the last minute penalty, the place erupts. It's how it's so hard not get into that when you have fans there. So that's the thing they're going to try and have to avoid. And other players, obviously, they're going to be prioritised by the clubs. They're not not going to want them getting sick and picking up. You know, picking up this this COVID and um, and and missing games and games being called off, which is the last thing the league is going to want to try and squeeze them in now after this as well into a really hectic pack schedule is going to be very difficult. But uh, yeah, it's the last thing we want now is this to be kind of swinging back into full force and and, and kind of interfering with everything again. Well, it's happening, isn't it, Adam? Because Norwich and Villa, mm. they've got their own problems. Tonight's match, QPR and Sheffield United postponed. Outbreak at the London club. It's everywhere. It is sadly, John, yeah. And I was very fearful when you think back of the Champions League matches last week that we watched and the German games behind closed doors, Leipzig against City was behind yeah, let's not go back Bayern there. Munich. Yeah. And you don't want to go back to that. Obviously, people's health and safety is the most important thing. We all know that. But you look at the cases tonight, Stephen alluded to 42. I think that's the highest since this time last year when we were in the height of the pandemic. Yeah. And we all thought come this time this year, a year on, we'd be well out of it. We all thought we'd be coming out of it. And as you say, John, like I'm even looking, there's a text about NBA games getting called off yeah, I really hope we're not going back Tuesday, to um, yeah. going back yeah. to basically the doom and gloom that surrounded all that but again as I say as I re-emphasize people's health and safety has to be the priority but it would be worrying when you see that high number of 42 cases obviously um, being announced there this evening Alright listen Stephen Kelly thanks I for joining us so before you go yeah go ahead Yeah I was going to say I think there's going to be a big magnifying glass now on the players, if they are te- if they are tested, if they're actually vaccinated, because there's a big push about that not happening. Yeah. I'm sure there's going to be a big look into that now again, because if if the numbers that have been banded about the Premier League, which I don't think could be correct, um, in the sense of the players, and I hope it's not, but that's going to be a big thing that's going to be looked into about the players actually being vaccinated, and if that's if that's something that's actually causing this to, to spread quicker within the within these circumstances. All right, thanks very much for joining us, Stephen Kelly. We're talking athletics and uh, wonderful weekend at the European Cross Country Championships held in Dublin. We're talking to Andrew uh, Coscran, who's a part of the Ireland Mixed Relay team that came in agonisingly in fourth place, but it was a good weekend for the Irish. Green Farm. Fuel your day with Green Farm's high-protein cooked chicken breast fillet. 100% natural and packed with flavour. Game on on 2FM. Final couple of moments of the uh, programme. Tomorrow we'll be talking to Mona McSharry, the Irish Olympian who reached the Olympic final of the 100 metres breaststroke. They are competing, or she's competing with uh, 10 others for Ireland at the World Short Course Swimming Championships in Abu Dhabi later this week. We'll talk to her tomorrow night. But uh, got to say good evening to Andrew uh, Coscran, who's on the phone with us now. Andrew, good evening to you. 
Hi, how are you? I'm very good. Uh, three medals at the European Cross Country Championships for Ireland. A couple got away, including yourself, the mixed relay. He just couldn't hang on in the end. It, it was a wonderful day, though, wasn't it? I mean, the amount of people who turned up for it, the atmosphere, fantastic. How did you feel about it all? Yeah, it was a great championships. Uh, like, outstanding from the Irish overall. Uh, throughout the board, great. Uh, some really good performances. Um, I think for ourselves, uh, I was in the mixed relay. And uh, yeah, we just uh, we had a sh- we had a shot of a medal and just fell short. Came fourth, and he's nearly better off coming further back to field than fourth and just missing out on the medal. So it's, yeah, it's, cruel. it's disappointing. Um, but what can you do? You ran that last le- leg, didn't you? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah I it, it looked leg, like you gave it all, long. and you were spent. Yeah, yeah. Well, like um, so, we had we had a talk before. Uh, we had a team huddle there, and we were all talking. And we were just like, we're there to go for gold. Um, so we that's what we we went out there to do and then and then I got the baton and I was in third um and I had an option there whether to try and sit in and maybe kind kind of go for second or go for third um but I I decided just to charge on and try and catch up with the British who were in first place maybe about 20 meters ahead I charged after them and then one of the Belgian guys and French guys kind of sat in behind me and then kicked by me right at the end but sure I went for it all and that's what we wanted and unfortunately fell short but we've learned from it and we'll go again and hopefully next year we can do better You can't do any worse than going for it all um, yeah. The whole day though um, I know I don't know if you were aware of it, but you obviously um, were aware of the amount of crowds that, that, that turned up it was just extraordinary Athletics don't get that kind of crowds normally but this was kind of like a throwback to the days of John Tracy and Limerick Racecourse and huge crowds turning up yeah, it was phenomenal. Like I think I think there was nine thousand tickets sold and like nine thousand people around the cross country course in Abbottstown, it's insane. Um, people everywhere, people running everywhere. The the crowds were just like loud as hell. It was almost like you're in a stadium, like people everywhere shouting. Phenomenal sort of atmosphere. Uh you couldn't ask for any more. And I think like it just goes to show that there is a lot of athletics fans in Ireland. Um you might not. It might not seem like that, but there's a lot of people behind the scenes watching athletics, and and when you give them an opportunity to turn them to a championships like Eurocross, they'll be there and they'll love it like, and they'll get behind all the Irish and and, and support like. Uh, and very young uh, teams, uh, runners, uh, athletics from athletes from Ireland, uh, show that perhaps you got good strength and depth. Yeah, uh, the junior team was 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 really good. Um, I know Nick Griggs because kind of like there was a lot of hype behind him to kind of get a medal and unfortunately he fell short but he held on um, and ran really tough actually it was really impressive held on to be the third scorer um, and he ran well and then the other two lads on the team they ran phenomenal as well and that was really strong and they're all they're all um, they're all able to run next year in junior again so that mm. just shows that like there's a good chance of gold there in junior next year and then the under 23 lads they pulled off they pulled off the gold um and I think some of them are under twenty trees again next year as well. So, and then we just they'll they'll be good in their own age categories again. And then when they come up to senior, hopefully they'll be even better. So there's there's a lot to get excited for for the future. Uh, tell us, uh, there's one little aside. I know Son- I just got this here. Sonia O'Sullivan launched the Irish uh, Life Health Runnery program to support all levels of runners to run in January and not let it run them. Are you involved in this? Uh, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, that's why. Tell I'm us on about it. Tonight. Yeah, just tell us about it. Yeah, so Runuary is great. It's a, it's it's a great campaign. It's just to get people running in January. I think like this time of year, well, January time of year, it's 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 wet, it's cold. There's no incentive to get out running, and uh, we've kind of noticed this. And then that's why uh, the Runuary set up to kind of like set a goal for people. So 
it, you set a target at the end of January um, and you aim to run a 5K, 10K, 5 mile, whatever you want to run and then, you, and then you're given a running program to target the whole way through January with the end goal of racing at the end. It's free to, it's free to sign up for it um, and it's a great way to just get motivated in January. Um, it's, it's, it's great. Everyone should get involved with it. Sure. How do you sign up? Uh, you just sign up um, through uh, through the website. Go on to Athletics Ireland and uh, type in Runuary, and it'll it'll be there. Yeah, it's a great idea, isn't it? I mean, especially in in January, everybody's kind of browned off <laughs> after the Christmas yeah. period or whatever. But it's a good idea, isn't it? Get yourself up and running. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, everyone's there eating their Christmas turkey and maybe put on a few pounds. So yeah. tell me about it. Run run off those extra calories and and get running again and, and feel good about yourself again. Sure. Uh, before I let you go, what's the future hold for you, Andrew? Um, this this year, I think, well, next year, World Indoors, World Outdoors, Europeans, uh, targeting finals, medals, yeah, onwards and upwards. I love it. Andrew Coscarin, thanks for joining us. Congratulations on your success over the weekend. Before we go, um, we just got this in. Ministers Martin and Chambers have received a letter which outlined a number of issues of concern within Ireland's women's rugby. That letter is being considered with the utmost seriousness, particularly in the context of the leadership that the players have shown in recent years in driving the game forward. The ministers have written to the players to let them know that they have sought a meeting with the IRFU to discuss the issues raised by the players They've also requested that Sport Ireland engage with the players. The minister advised the players he will be happy to meet directly with them also. That's it for me. Tara Kumar is next. I'm back again tomorrow night for more on Game On here on 2FM. Hope you've enjoyed it. Talk to you tomorrow night. Bye now.